Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I can't begin to tell you how delighted I am to speak with our distinguished guest today, Dr. Don Berwick. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm also a little bit nervous about this dialogue, and maybe we can get a chance to explore that with the good Dr. Berwick. Now, the starting point and the cornerstone of our discussion today will be Dr. Berwick's recent JAMA Viewpoint article published on January 30th of this year, 2023. It was entitled, Salve Lucrum, The Existential Threat of Greed in U.S. Healthcare. In this article, Dr. Berwick writes, and I quote, no sector of the U.S. healthcare system is immune from the immoderate pursuit of profit. Neither drug companies, nor insurers, nor hospitals, nor investors, nor physician practices, end quote. So you might be wondering, what's so bad with the immoderate pursuit of profit in American healthcare and what exactly does Dr. Berwick mean by the word immoderate? I believe these questions and others will be answered in spades by our distinguished guest. Now, I'm going to have to cut the intro down for Dr. Berwick. It is just, I've got a couple of pages and they barely begin to scratch the surface. Dr. Berwick is the President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, an organization that he co-founded and led as president and CEO for 18 years. He is, without doubt, one of the world's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. Don has been a member of the Institute of Medicine. In fact, he contributed greatly and really was a leader in the publication of the landmark 2001 IOM report, Crossing the Quality Chasm, as well as another landmark report, To Air is Human. Anyone in quality or safety in healthcare knows how foundational and groundbreaking those bodies of work were, and, and, and Don led those. He served as the vice chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. He's been on the board of the trustees of the American Hospital Association. He has worked for President Clinton on President Clinton's Advisory Commission on Consumer Protection and Quality in the Healthcare Industry. He was appointed in July 2010 by President Obama to the position of Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which he held until December of 2011. He's been appointed in 2005 an honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire. So he's been knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, a great story that I've heard him talk about. It is the highest honor awarded by the UK to non-British subjects, and that was in recognition for his work with the National Health Service in Britain. He's authored and co-authored over 160 scientific articles. He's a pediatrician by background, served at the Harvard Medical School, the Harvard School of Public Health, Boston Children's, Mass General, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Again, I could go on and on. I just want to say on a slightly more personal note, I've had the privilege of listening to, learning from Dr. Burke for nearly two decades now. He is one of the most insightful and inspiring leaders I have ever encountered inside of healthcare and out of healthcare. 
Dr. Berwick's integrity, his vulnerability, his courage in speaking the truth are profound. And what I believe we need to see much more of in American healthcare and in American leadership. And I think that's really foundational to the conversation we're having today. So Don, again, I cut this short purposely, but just want to welcome you again. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Thanks for that extraordinarily generous uh, introduction and back at you. Your contributions through this podcast and your leadership in the country make it uh, even more of a pleasure to join you. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Don, before we jump into the topic at hand, I know that you are actually, in fact, launching your own podcast. And I, I'd like to give you a moment just to share that with the listeners. Well, thanks so much, Sid. We're trying to take a leaf from your page. We won't be able to meet your standards, but I think you and uh, are among the leaders in the country in showing the value of this kind of medium. Yes, my colleague, Kedar Mate, Dr. Mate, is the current CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and I are now already recording programs for a podcast series that will be called Turn on the Lights. The basic motivation here is that, that we think that the American public at large, well beyond the professionals who spend their lives in healthcare, are often confused about healthcare. They know it's important, but it's an opaque system. Uh, and, and there's a whole list of issues we want to turn the lights on about so that people from the public at large can understand more what's going on in healthcare and actually become politically and personally active in trying to seek changes because healthcare is not doing what it needs to do. So Turn on the Lights will be a podcast series. We'll be launching it probably later this month in March and interviewing people and addressing topics, probably in clusters, like we'll have a month focused on populations that get left out. We'll have a month focused on my bill. You know, How do we understand this crazy pricing you see? What do these numbers mean? Uh, we'll talk about the actual things that affect health and healthcare. We might even get into typical technical topics like how does Medicare work? How does Medicaid work? And what does that mean for me as a person? So I'm very excited about it, Zev. Uh, and I appreciate your help in, in figuring out how to do this. And we'll be launching soon. So please watch this space. Turn on the lights. Turn on the lights. I'm so excited about it. Sign me up. Actually, is it available if I go to my iPhone now and look at a podcast or is it coming soon? Coming soon. Not available yet. I would estimate three to four weeks from now. So we're recording at the beginning of March. I'd say by late March, you'll be able to find it through the normal channels. Yeah, I'm ready to sign up. It's much needed and so aligned with, Don, with all that you're trying to do and particularly bringing healthcare now out to the public and for all the reasons you mentioned, so important. So Don, we're going to get into some facts and stats that you're going to share with us on some heavy topics, if you will. And I may be putting the cart before the horse here, but before we dive in to the content I'd like to talk about framing this conversation. And part of this is just getting something off my chest with you. And, and part of it is naming the elephant in the room in your article in JAMA, which I, again, uh, you know, I, I wrote to you right away and, and emailed you and said, just fantastic. And thank you for that leadership in that article and so many of the others in the same vein. But we're going to dive into this topic. We're looking at hospital systems, insurance companies, provider practices, pharma. The truth is that I am an employee of a large hospital-based healthcare system, one of the largest in the country. The truth is that I have friends and colleagues who are employees and leaders at hospital systems, at healthcare insurance companies, for sure in provider practices, in MA, and even in pharma. And so I guess I'm feeling a little conflicted about the criticism, critique, and I guess I'm wondering, A, how do I process this? How do I hear what you're about to share with us without getting defensive or offensive. I mean, you're a master, Don. I mean, I've heard you speak 
for years now. And I just, there is no one in healthcare who has the narrative prowess that you have and being able to take complex situations and, and use metaphor and allegory and really simplify them and tell an incredibly truthful story and also a hopeful and future-facing story. So it's this notion of people may not remember everything you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. How should we be feeling about and thinking about what you shared in the article and what we're going to be talking about today. And so I know there's a couple of different questions there, but I thought it would be helpful. And it might be that I, I edit this out of the podcast, but for me, it was really important to ask you that question up front. Well, I'm glad you're asking, Stefan. I understand, I think, what you're asking. Let me take a run at it. First, let me lower expectations. I think I see a serious problem. I call it existential, and I feel very, very worried about where especially American healthcare is headed right now with respect to the issues we're going to be talking about and that I raised in the article. Uh, so I don't want to mute my level of concern. It's, it, it could not be higher. But I think people are good. And in healthcare, most of the people engage, whether they are physicians or nurses or receptionists or managers or executives or board members, I think they generally do want to do good for people and for the world. I don't doubt that for a minute about you, Zev, for sure. We're here to be healers. And we get this lucky opportunity to be part of a massive enterprise with technical wizardry to actually help health grow and occur and to relieve suffering. I, I have very little doubt in the, in the good hearts of almost everybody as individuals. But individuals act in context. And what I'm saying is the context that we now have found ourselves in we can talk about why, has shifted the focus from people to money. And every single sector, just as you quoted my article, is now being dominated by uh, theories of action, behaviors, goals that have left the patient out of the picture and are failing to meet the greater social needs in this country to uh, make sure that resources go where the resources do the most. Instead, profiteering, Storing money away, getting the most you can has become, I would say, the dominant behavior, the dominant agenda of, of too many organizations in the, in the country. I think it harms you. I think that if, if you are able, as the executive and clinical leader you are, to be in a context which nurtures your own commitment to your purpose in life, uh, you're better off. You're happier. You feel more fulfilled. And so one of the biggest costs of this shift of focus is the loss of uh, connection to the, the meaning in, in your life and your work. Now, I don't want to go so far as to say that's true of you. I don't know, but I'm hearing in response to that article, my, my inbox is, is jammed a hundred emails so far from doctors and nurses and managers and people in insurance companies of really crying out saying, yes, you know, I, it isn't right. Uh, I, I find myself in a situation in which I don't get to be the person I want to be. The language that's accumulated, as I'm sure you know, in part is about moral injury. M moral injury referring to when a person finds himself or herself in a situation where they can't engage in the deeds that add meaning to their life. In fact, in some cases, they even have to do the opposite. And that's exactly what we're doing right now to doctors and nurses, for example, throughout this country. So I'm not naive about this. There are definitely people out here that don't fit the uh, description I have in mind, but I have infinite trust in the goodwill and spirit of the people trying to help patients. But I think they're being blocked right now. Mm -hmm. Boy, oh boy, so many thoughts. Thank you 
So first of all, I just want to share a really brief story. I was in a board meeting last night, was it? And one of the doctors, we were talking about the cost of care and, and trying to appropriately reduce the cost of care through reducing unnecessary utilization. And one of the doctors said, listen, you know, I know that having insurance for us doctors on a call on this board and administrative leaders, so for us, yes, we have insurance and it's relatively easy for us to pay for it. But he said, let me just tell you something. My front office staff, they work in the same organization we all work in. They can't afford insurance. They cannot afford insurance. And I thought, oh my God, it it hit my, and in fact, when I just said it now, it just hit me in the center of my chest. It, it just, to know that people we work around in healthcare can't afford health insurance, that's just the tip, right? And you have these stats on the tip of your tongue in terms of how unaffordable healthcare, and it's not just the uninsured, it's the insured that, that still can't afford healthcare and how it's devastating households and individuals. And you go into some of that in your article. The other point I want to make, and I think it's really important here, this reframing of what you said, because I could see people sort of raising their back a bit and, and getting defensive. And I guess my question, as I was listening to you talk about this and parse out that what you're critiquing is really the system, not the individuals in the system. And I think that's an important distinction because all of a sudden I'm asking myself if I get defensive and, and I'll admit part of me got defensive about your article, and I'm, I'm sure many others as well. But for those who are listening to this conversation, the question I would ask myself and, and you all is, if we find ourselves getting defensive, what is it we're actually defending, right? What is it we're actually defending? And I think that's a really important question because to your point, burnout, in fact, there was just an article in the New York Times by uh, Dr. Eric Reinhardt about burnout and the fact that he attributes this as an expert in this area to the real demoralization, the loss of trust, not that patients have in healthcare system, the loss of trust that providers and staff have in healthcare system. And so I think this whole issue of the moral injury, and Dr. Reinhardt refers to it as well as many others and yourself, I think the question we have to sort of step back when we get defensive about what you wrote, what is it that we're actually defending? Because the system is, to your point, the system is harming when you have two thirds of providers having some level of burnout, many of whom having severe burnout and demoralization and frustration. And the numbers attest to this, whether in nursing or with physicians or, or APPs and staff. So again, I just want to frame this up as you're listening to Dr. Berwick speak. And if you're getting defensive, the question is, what are you defending? What do you think about that question, Don? Well, I think it depends on who you are in your, in, in your question. I think that most people are good and they go to work wanting to feel good about what they do. And when a critic shows up, like I am saying, this isn't, this is broken. It would the natural first reactions, but I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm trying to do my best. Why, why are you accusing me? Why are you pointing a finger at me? As you said, Zev, I'm not pointing a finger mostly at individuals at all. I'm saying you are trapped in a system, which is making you act in ways you don't want to act. But still, this this disjunction between saying there's a problem and knowing how good your heart is, and I, I don't mean to sound naive about it, mm. it, of course, people feel defensive and misunderstood, and we have to work that through. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is economic self-interest. Uh, certainly, for example, in the insurance industry, which is one of the biggest culprits here, we are seeing profit margins that are astoundingly large, and people are getting extremely wealthy. Um, what I think are misbehaviors, not 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 illegal behaviors, but wrong behaviors. And they like those incomes. Their stockholders do, their shareholders do. For them, success, when they look at their boards, are being able to show high returns. 
And so they get defensive because they're doing their jobs. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, which is make as much money as they can. And then when the lights get turned on on that and say, wait a minute, you're doing it by putting your hand in a cookie jar and other people need that money, yes, they will defend their, their current self-interest. Part of it, I think, comes from helplessness. And I feel that too, Zev. Um, I know this is a problem. I can see it. and But it's an enormous problem. It may go so deeply as to question the whole idea of profit in healthcare. We may have this thing built wrong. And that's not something any individual can change. And so that the sense of helplessness, looking at a problem so big that you as a person, individual, can't do anything about it, you feel helpless. And when people feel helpless, they get defensive. So uh, my hope is that uh, by speaking out and having others speak out, we can begin to create a sense of agency where we we say we can change this and we will, but we're we're quite a ways from that. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't I don't think there's one simple answer to your question, and the defensiveness is completely understandable, but it's not an excuse for not fixing it. Yeah, well, let's circle back to this issue of what we can do, and I, I thank you for setting it up that way, the way you did. Let's jump into some of what you wrote about in the JAMA article that was just published this January. When you talk about greed and you mentioned the insurance companies. And so you looked at insurance companies and shed a bit of light on that, this moderate pursuit of profit. You tackled pharma. You looked at hospital systems in terms of 340B drug pricing, hospital-based fees, uh, consolidations, executive pay. Then you went to MA providers and particularly looked at Oak Street Health. So if you can maybe maybe start with insurance and then move to pharma and hospital systems and the providers, I think just giving a little bit of a taste of what you're talking about, I'd love to sort of dive into that with you. Uh, sure, Zev. So starting with insurers, the particular focus I have right now is on that part of Medicare, which is called Medicare Advantage. And as most of the people listening know, back 30 years or so ago, uh, as the the good, what I'll call the good part of managed care was beginning to show what it could do in American healthcare, really terrific organizations like uh, Group Health Cooperative in Puget Sound and the Harvard Community Health Plan where I worked and uh, Kaiser Permanente, they were showing that you could actually deliver better care at lower cost if you could actually manage the care and were able to do it through a prepaid, prepaid environment. Nonprofit organizations, patient-centered, trying to use the money as best they could and with high flexibility. So, uh, People in Washington got interested and thought that if it was possible in Medicare to offer people a chance to join health plans instead of having the government be the payer, let the government pay the health plan and the health plan would take over the care of Medicare beneficiaries that wanted to do, go that way. And that was the predecessor of what is today Medicare Advantage. Today, almost 50% of Medicare beneficiaries choose to have their care managed by a health plan and have the government pay the health plan instead of the government pay the doctor directly. That's Medicare Advantage. The dream of Medicare Advantage of better care at lower cost was temporarily began, but within a few years, the whole system was captured by the insurance companies, the health plans, who figured out more and more ways to keep the money that the government was giving them. And the biggest game of all uh, became the coding game. And I don't know how much in the weeds you want to get in the podcast, but it works something like this. If you're a health plan and I'm Medicare, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money to take care of Don Berwick for the year. We have to figure out how much money that should be for Don Berwick. And that needs to be adjusted by my health condition. If I have cancer or heart disease or congestive heart failure, I need to get paid more or otherwise I won't try to enroll Don Berwick. So there has to be a severity adjustment for the payment to these Medicare Advantage plans. 
that's done currently by a coding system in which basically any diagnoses in my record are assembled to, uh, under something called um, hierarchical condition categories, HCC codes, and there are about 70 or 80 of them. And then depending on which codes apply to me, Medicare will pay more. So if we say um, an average Medicare beneficiary is well, we'll call that 1.0, that's how much money we'll pay. If I have diabetes, it goes maybe to 1.3, or if I have cancer, maybe to 1.6. So if a health plan can store more codes in my record one way or another, it'll get paid a lot more. So far, so good. I mean, that's probably how we want to adjust. But under the coding system, it's possible to put codes in my record that have nothing to do with my care. Screen for conditions that will never be treated, but put the code in my record. Examples would include, for example, carotid artery screening. Carotid artery screening is not recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and yet there are health plans that actually pay doctors to screen carotid arteries of everybody they can find. And then if there's a little narrowing of the carotid artery, put that in as a code. And what happens is Medicare then pays more, but it has nothing to do with the care of the patient. This is pure gravy for the health plan. And they have gotten really good at it, especially the big players like United Healthcare or Humana or others. They are masters of coding. Billions of dollars get spent to get more codes parked into my record, even though it has nothing to do with my needs. This becomes profit to the health plan. They don't have to spend the money on care. They just keep the money that CMS has paid. And this is the part of the big Medicare Advantage coding game. The profits are phenomenal. Look at the stock values and the profits being reported. United Health, I think, over $20 billion of profit in 2022. In fact, these are the largest sources of profits for insurance companies in the, in the country, I believe. Every time an attempt has been made to make the coding system fairer, the health plans and their colleagues have come out of the woodwork, gone to Capitol Hill, fought like the Dickens to preserve their profit. That's profiteering. That's not about the needs of patients. That's just about get me more money. The health plans will claim that their care is better, but that's very squirrely, very hard to pin down. They are very opaque. They won't share data that would allow us to compare them. And their finances speak for themselves. That's what I call uh, immoderate profit. This is not illegal, by the way. They're using the coding system that the government has established, but the coding system is wrong. CMS this year has right now, as we talk, have out a, 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 an advance notice of proposed changes in coding to shut down some of these games. And I have never seen more lobbying come out of the woodwork mm. than I have in the past month or two. Capitol Hill is flooded with representatives from insurance companies telling Congress people not to uh, allow CMS to make these changes. The changes, by the way, are not so massive. They're just a beginning. Mm -hmm. There was a Super Bowl commercial that cost $3.5 million dollars by Medicare Advantage plans in the Super Bowl, touting the advantages of Medicare Advantage. This is what I call profiteering. And that money comes from somewhere, and it's a massive amount of money. Rick Cronick, a colleague, a researcher, has estimated that in the next eight years, this game, this coding game, is going to cost our country $600 billion more than traditional Medicare would. And that that's money denied to to uh, food security and housing and, and infrastructure development and workers, 90 billion of that is going to come right out of the pockets of Medicare beneficiaries in, in co-pays. So um, it's an example of, of immoderacy and the political pressure not to do something is enormous. I, I hope that CMS is able to maintain the courage and the political support to make these beginning changes to start to unravel this. But that's one example of 
excessive greed. Back to your point about individuals, you know, if I worked for an insurance company or were CEO of one, uh, I probably feel pretty insulted by all of this. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I'm describing the behaviors that are there and every email I'm getting uh, says, yep, you're right. This is what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I heard also that like exactly what you said, uh, CMS is given notice that diabetes and depression were going to be taken out of the HCC codes and obviously incredibly prevalent depression and diabetes in the Medicare population, the over 65 population. So taking out the appropriate coding or HCC has a lot of folks worried. Well, that that's the kind of misinformation that the Medicare Advantage plans are purveying. No, they're not taking away the diabetes code. They're consolidating diabetes coding yeah. to reduce that's the right. amount of gaming within diabetes, for that's example. Right. Yep. In diabetes coding, there's complex and non-complicated diabetes. For health plans, mm -hmm. some of their coding, 90% of all of their diabetics is complex. Mm. That's gaming because that mm. can't be true. Uh, another example is around peripheral vascular disease. United Healthcare is alleged to be sending nurses into people's homes to screen uh, with a machine for peripheral vascular, for, for uh, arterial narrowing or atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries and the legs. For almost all patients, that has no implications whatsoever for treatment. It has nothing to do with, with treatment. In the traditional Medicare population, 14% of that population has peripheral vascular disease coded because there's no incentive to upcode. In the United population, apparently, it's 49%. Half of all the population is being coded with this condition that doesn't need treatment, but that increases annual payment by Medicare for about three of about $3,000 a year, I think it is. For, for health plan. That's that's just, that's games. Yeah. And CMS is proposing now to close down the most abused codes, but you know, they're not going to take away a diabetes code. That, that You can't do so that. It's, no. Right. So it's a consolidation. That's actually super, super helpful. Same for congestive heart failure. They're rationalizing right. this system that's right. because they've spotted the games. They know the games. Yeah. The question here, and, and this is what I would imagine MA providers and insurance companies would argue is that yes we're, we're we're trying to accurately depict the severity of the patients we have in terms of chronic disease and the real proof is in the pudding is not so much you know what the upfront costs are but rather are we pouring more money in upfront and in, in terms of primary preventive care that would allow the total cost of care because that really is what's important what is the total cost is ma has it led to an, an overall reduction in hospitalizations, readmissions, ED visits, avoidable care, whether it's surgical procedures, testing, MRIs, total cost of care. What's the answer to that question as far as we know? Uh, well, first, it's hard to get the answer to the question because a lot of the information we need is kept secret by the plants. But so far as we know, first, on the positive side, yes, there have been innovations in some health plans through the years to have more coordinated care, more team-based care, more home outreach, and, and embedded in this conversation, certainly there are some uh, bright spots that we need to capture and use and extend further into uh, coverage, not just of Medicare patients, but others. I do believe that the kind of global budgets that have allowed that to happen are something we should be pushing forward in this country. But here's the, the first, has it reduced costs? No. I told you, $600 billion more over the next eight years compared to traditional Medicare patients. So no, costs are way up because of the Medicare Advantage gaming. Better outcomes, most of the data that Medicare Advantage plans have, have published on allegedly better outcomes are studies produced by consulting firms that consult to Medicare Advantage. There really is a fox, fox watching the chicken coop side of the data, a lot of the data that are being 
that are being touted. Also remember the coding game makes evaluation of outcomes harder. And hopefully this isn't too technical, but if I can say through coding games that Zev Newworth is sicker mm -hmm. than Don Berwick, then it, it, it makes it easier to show progress with Zev Newworth because now I can, I've, I've upcoded this apparent severity. And when I get back to actual measurement of outcomes, it's going to look like I was very successful, but that's a, that's a, side effect it's a it's a consequence of the upcoding it's not 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 better care mm. in terms of uh, hospitalizations yes the medicare advantage plans claim some of them that their hospitalization rates are lower possibly yes that could by the way be withholding needed care because there's a lot of issues here around pre-certification and restrictions by health plans but also uh, we have ev I have evidence now that the health plans are using the uh, short stay observation status in hospitals more than traditional Medicare so that the patients are in the hospital. They're just not coded as admitted. Mm -hmm. The size of that effect, it could be quite substantial. And in the early work I've done now with my colleague, Rick Gilfillan, it looks like that may explain a lot of the apparent difference in hospitalization use. So uh, we, we have a long way to go to discover uh, actually that the, that the Medicare Advantage plans are producing better results. And remember, if you can upcode, if you can show more mm -hmm. risk in the patient, it's easier to show improvements because you've actually identified morbidities that aren't real. So I, I doubt that the um, success being touted by some MA plans and outcomes is, will withstand scrutiny. And by the way, if the plans really want to make that case, open up your data. Let, mm -hmm. let this become a matter of transparency mm -hmm. instead of hiding, hiding the information. Late in 2022, Researchers at United Health Group published an article in uh, JAMA Network Open, in which they tried to use the article to show that their outcomes were better. But if you look at the table, especially the first large table in that paper, they actually published their own upcoding. They, I don't know if they realized they were doing it, but you can see exactly what's happening. Uh, that's where that number of uh, peripheral vascular disease codes from 14% up to 49%, 14% traditional Medicare, 49%. In Medicare Advantage shows exactly the uh, the game that's being played to upcode severity, so you can get credit for improvement of outcomes. It's uh, it's it's deception. It's fascinating. I didn't realize that outcomes were risk adjusted to cost and outcomes. Now we're getting a little bit too much in the weeds. I don't want to yeah. do that, but kind of along these same lines, and it does make sense what you're saying that really the kind of a next step is more transparency of data and more bona fide objective research into some of the, these questions around the benefits of Medicare Advantage. In your article, you talk about the MA-based providers, and particularly you call out Oak Street. I mean, Oak Street has been touted, again, along with others, although I, I think it's different. I, I will say I've got a lot of respect for some of the folks that have been around for a while who have been doing this work, the Chen Meds and Ioras and Agilons and others, but uh, Oak Street is one that sort of came along later and took a very, very different path in terms of scaling and commercializing, and their profits are remarkable. And as most of the listeners are aware, Oak Street is being acquired now by CVS Health for over $10 billion. So they've clearly demonstrated to the market that there's a lot of potential for future earnings there and profit. So what's the story with Oak Street from your perspective? And, and I think it is tied to some of the things you've just been talking about. They're in a class of organizations. You mentioned some of the others, ChenMed and IR Health, for example, Village MD, which have been innovators. They're they're doing some really clever things with uh, very uh, stressed and needy populations. And I think we have a lot to learn from them for the entire healthcare system. I commend the innovation. 
but at what price is this happening? And that's where the other side of this coin. And uh, these organizations are have become masterful at upcoding as well, such that when you look at the alleged severity score, let's let's take again that idea of an average traditional Medicare patient being at 1.0, just that's mm-hmm. the index of severity. These firms are looking when you look, of course, we have a problem with, with opacity and, and, and transparency, but so far as we can tell, they're claiming average severity of 1.8, 1.7, 1.5, which is really beyond. It stresses credulity. If you take the table that uh, United Healthcare, for example, published on its own MA plan and, and, and crank it back to say, what's the, the apparent alleged severity? It's 1.44. They're claiming their patients are 50% sicker than the rest. So these are, these have become innovative places that are doing good things, but also upcoding the heck out of the system and walking away with a ton of money. Chen Med's, I believe, privately held, so we don't know what's going on with their profits. But when you see valuations that, uh, for such as the Oak Street valuation, you got to raise some eyebrows. I don't know what the current calculation would be, but at the last time Oak Street changed hands, the, evalu- the valuation in the market was about almost $200,000 per patient. Wow. That means that these places, this is, this is speculation. This is not, this is, this is, uh, I think the market, I think it could be a bubble in which the market is, is, is playing on the future earnings, assuming that these games can continue. And I don't know if, if, uh, CMS is able to begin to exercise some discipline in this coding game. I don't know if these investors are going to end up happy. Uh, so I don't think you're seeing a reward for better care. Mm-hmm. I think you're seeing a, a play on the possibility that these games can continue. That said, I, I have enormous respect for a lot of the innovations that these places have done. Let them be the teachers and the guides for us, but not at the premium costs that we're now uh, seeing because of this profiteering. But Don, let's shift over to pharma. It was the first stakeholder you tackled there. When you shine a light on pharma in terms of, again, what you call the moderate pursuit of profit, what do you see there? Well, it's... <laughs> It's it's a good news, bad news story also. I mean, you know, we, we have to understand that of the advances that have been made against disease in this uh, world, a substantial proportion of those advances have been in a development of new and wonderful drugs, uh, biologics that can do things we never thought were possible before. So I, I, again, one has to understand that better pharmacy is uh, part of the agenda of improvement of well-being of people in the world. So I must say that, but at what cost and at what profit levels? Pharmaceutical firms are enormously profitable and the prices drive you crazy. How can a pharmaceutical company with a straight face come forward with a drug that they're charging $150,000 a year for? Uh, On their face, these prices, they they don't seem rational. Mm -hmm. Now, the pharmaceutical firms push back and say, well, it's value-based pricing. You know, of course, you know, they're expensive because they do so much good. Well, hold on a minute. I don't value-based pricing. I mean, what would I pay to have a glass of water in a desert? An infinite amount. Mm-hmm. The, 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 we, we don't in general have a, a market system in which products are paid for at the, at the quote value they offer society. They're paid for at the cost of production plus some fair profit. That's far from what these drug companies are doing with their so-called value pricing. They, it's extortion pricing. That's true for some of the more advanced drugs that appear. And I, I sense no discipline, none, on the part of the pharmaceutical firms to actually understand that the money they're taking is coming from people that can't afford things that, and from governments that need money for other purposes. So I think it's another form of, uh, of exploitation. 
and it's not done for the public good. It's done for the benefit of investors and owners and, and, and profits. And it costs heavily. 110 million Americans today are in, are in medical debt. It's the largest cause of bankruptcy in the country, medical debt. And that is a consequence of the behaviors we're talking about, including behaviors of pharma. At the pricing level, uh, you see the exploitation of, I don't know where we'll end up with Moderna's pricing of the life-saving uh, vaccine, but I assume Moderna is going to get whatever they can instead of engaging in, in proper stewardship of public and private resources and saying, no, we'll price this at the cost of production plus a, plus a fair profit. Mm-hmm. If Moderna carries out what is alleged to be their plan on, on pricing uh, vaccines, lots of people are either going to be in deeper debt or unable to get the medications. There are, of course, the other severe cases of truly outrageous behavior, the Martin Shkreli kind of behavior, mm-hmm. the pricing of, of Makina and of uh, Colchris, where that's just exploiting the patent law to get whatever prices they can once these firms can corner the market. Again, profiteering has nothing to do with the public interest. So um, I, I don't think the drug companies with respect to prices are behaving in a way that we need them to. And a lot of the innovation they claim uh, is being supported by these excessive profits. I think under scrutiny, that's just not true. First, they're often innovating in ways that aren't, they're just preserving patents. They're not actually in innovating ways that'll improve outcomes. And uh, we have research now by Aaron Kesselheim and others that suggest that no, no, it's not the case that the the high profits support high innovation, that that, that logic doesn't bear up under scrutiny. So I, I, I wish the drug company, I wish the pharmaceutical industry would exercise more discipline, would held itself accountable. And when there's truly outrageous behaviors like with EpiPens and and such that it says, no, you can't, I, we, you may not do that in this industry. We're gonna, we're gonna police ourselves and they've shown no no sense of doing that. The international price comparisons are kind of the smoking gun here. You know, drugs can be obtained and regulated in healthcare systems in, in Western Europe at a fraction of the price here. And they probably represents much more what fair pricing would look like. Again, the drug companies claim, well, that's a subsidy. You know, the high American prices are supporting innovations that would not occur if we had European prices. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I'm very, very curious about the Kesselheim literature in terms of debunking this argument that pharma makes about the prices supporting R&D. I mean, my understanding is, in fact, that a lot of the R&D is actually subsidized by the government already. Yes. And so they're getting it for free and then charging as if the argument being they, they actually invested in that research and that R&D development of the drug, which is, that's a great area to kind of dive a little bit more into his research. Obviously, this point was made nationally public by uh, President Biden recently in his State of the Union and talked about the cost of insulin and 30 million or more Americans with diabetes, over 7 million on insulin. He made the point, best in Banting developed insulin in the 1920s, gave it away, literally said, I'm not going to put my name on it and patent it. It's for the public good. They sold it to the University of Toronto for literally $1.00. But now if you have diabetes and you need a just a, a little jar of it, which costs $10 to produce and to distribute, is being sold for $250 to $350 a vial. And so just unconscionable, especially some of the stats you shared that you know we're talking about over 40% of adults have to forego medications and treatment because they simply can't afford it. So this is not a minor problem 
this is a major problem. So really glad you pointed it out. I agree. I, I, mean, I think the if, if, if these pharmaceutical company behaviors persist, they're begging for price controls. There, there, there will be no other option. Mm. And they have the political power to block that now. But but over time, I hope we're going to have a, a public that's exercised enough to say, no, this has got to stop. And, and government will have to take a, a heavier role. Yeah. Turning last to the issue of hospital systems. And again, I, I think your foundational point of, and I think this is important to emphasize again, that it's possible to both be incredibly grateful and aware of the benefits that each of these stakeholders bring to healthcare and to the public good and to health and hospitals in particular. Just, you know, we could go on and on lauding the benefits of hospital systems. But at the same time, you can appreciate that, recognize that, laud that, support that, and also at the same time, shine a light on some of these issues you're raising, which is really undermining, subverting the public good and harming individuals in very, very concrete ways, as you've already pointed out. So let's turn finally to hospitals and a few words about when you've shown a light on hospital systems, what turns up? Again, good news, bad news. I think we have to acknowledge that how important hospitals are in our ecosystem and how much good they do and uh, how good it feels probably to work in a hospital that's doing good work. So, I, you know, obviously it's a crucial part of our structure, but over time, the behaviors of hospitals, partly because of the influence of this profiteering by others, have migrated more and more toward financial management. They, you know, they say no, no margin, no mission. I kind of, kind of hate that term. I mean, it's it's all about mission and, and margin is a problem to solve, but not the dominant goal. And yet we are seeing in both the for-profit and not-for-profit hospital systems more and more focus on finance. That's what I'm hearing from physicians and nurses who are writing to me in response to this article, which is the only conversations occurring here now are about money. We can't get a hearing about patient needs. Now, it's very hard to run a hospital today. I absolutely know that. The staffing shortages are massive. Pandemic preparedness is still not in hand. We have to be working hard on social determinants of health. And so it's it's a really hard job. But the patient has to come first here. And, and I think what we're seeing is hospitals behaving in a way that emphasizes income, revenue, top line growth, and profit, and massive capital investments over the needs of patients and staff. An interesting report appeared in the Journal of General Internal Medicine by two Harvard medical students of mine hmm. and uh, Mike McWilliams uh, showing that for 15 large hospital centers, academic hospital centers, if you looked at their board of trustees, only 15% of the board members were people that had anything to do with patient care. The, the, the board leadership in those centers were uh, real estate investors and joint venture and venture capitalists and financiers, people who really don't have any particular expertise in the delivery of healthcare. And so you're seeing almost at the governance level conversations which don't keep patients in mind as the primary issue and do not regard cost containment as part of their duty. They get all the money they can. These behaviors are both in the for-profit and not-for-profit side. You mentioned in the introduction the 340B program. That mm -hmm. was a program introduced to reduce drug costs for people of low income. Hospitals have exploited 340B, and even hospitals now that are not serving low income populations at all have found a way to benefit from that government subsidy program. Uh, hospital prices are opaque, they're through the ceiling and are rising much faster than inflation. And uh, here we also see the problem of market consolidation. The strategy in many, many markets, especially urban markets, has been to consolidate hospitals 
increasing their leverage in negotiation and essentially engaging in near monopolistic behaviors with, with respect to pricing, in which there's no longer a relationship between prices and actual costs of production. And if you look at hospital bills, which I did in partial preparation of this article, you see, you see nonsense. Uh, I saw a hospital bill from a New York major medical center in New York in which a mother got her, her three children immunized against yellow fever because they were going to travel to South America and ended up with a bill, which I saw, in which the cost of yellow fever vaccine by this hospital charge was $2,444. Now, something about the way we set things up allow that that number to appear on a bill. I'm sure that's not in the end exactly what she paid. This is crazy. And hospitals will drive prices up as high as they possibly can in order to preserve their, their margins. Uh, we need a different way to think here. I think it's very um, egodystonic for that, probably for hospital leaders who know better. They know that they shouldn't be doing this, but they're trapped in a system which forces this kind of um, price gaming and it's... Uh, it's it's another form of moral injury, in my opinion. Let me pick up on that for a second. This was a question I was pondering as I was preparing for our conversation. You obviously get the opportunity to speak to lots of executives in healthcare and outside of healthcare, in the policy side and political side and research. The question is, do you actually see this sort of internal conflict? Do you, do you hear that from individuals saying, listen, my job, my day job is to run this organization, but, you know, I know it's wrong. I, I I don't feel good about it. I'm conflicted. I mean, is that something you've personally seen or, or I'm curious about? I have actually personally heard and seen this myself firsthand, witnessed folks talking about it from around the country. What's your experience with that? Well, I mean, I think the, the general reaction from executives that I speak with in public are that I, Don Berwick, don't understand that I'm, I'm being naive here, that mm -hmm. the pressures on hospitals are greater than I'm giving credit for and that, that if I were in their shoes, I'd have to behave the same way. Uh, so no, I, I think most people are defending their behaviors. But frankly, in private, I do hear what you're saying. The number of emails I'm getting or, or chats from people who say, yeah, that's what's going on. You've got this right. Some saying, and, I, and I, I've got to get out of this. I'm, I'm going to leave this industry it, it is large. But I, I must say, Zev, uh, hmm. discouragingly, uh, a lot of these conversations end with, but please don't tell anybody that I said this. Yeah. My job would be at risk or, you know, I, I've got to do this, even though I know yeah. I'm playing the game that I have to play. So we have this level of, what should I call it, a hiddenness mm -hmm. or um, lack of frankness that mm -hmm. is quite pervasive. It's very difficult, but I hear it. I hear it from every sector, pharma, insurance companies, physician groups, uh, hospitals, people uh, talking to me saying, you've got it right. That's what's going on here. But I just can't speak up right now. Yeah. Well, Don, for what it's worth, I completely understand. I will say that I have a tremendous amount of trepidation in having this conversation with you and posting it because, again, I'm I'm in the system. I, I work for what I consider to be an amazing hospital system. And my friends and colleagues, uh, close friends and colleagues who work in health insurance companies and practices you talked about the take ma and so i completely empathize with those others it's you know you have to ask yourself is this going to harm me individually if i have this conversation we open this up and so i think it actually is injurious to individuals there's no question about it again the bottom line is why is it that somewhere between 50 to 70 percent of all doctors and nurses and 
other staff and, and providers and administrators. Why is burnout so, I and mean, this is not a tipping point. We're way, way, way past with 50 to 70%. We're way past the tipping point. And it cannot be that the work is hard because the work has always been hard. So I think this notion of a moral injury is one, as you ask the question, at what price are we pursuing this current system-wide cause or direction? So you've already sort of spoken to the downside of this for individuals. And I think we could go on and on. If you've got another comment about how this is harming individuals, the public, communities, municipalities, uh, open to that question. But I, I would like to also turn to what can we do? Because it does seem like the answer lies in a collective, collaborative, inter-stakeholder, maybe even going outside of healthcare response. Yeah. I don't know, Zev. I, th well, I, I think we're all trapped. I think we're all trapped. I think we are in our silos of action doing what's rational locally. It's a commons problem. You know, if I ran a hospital, I guess I'd have to behave the same way. If I if I ran a drug company, I'd have to I'd have to play the game. The insurance company the same. We're trapped and we suboptimize our local interests because if we don't, we're suckers. You know, a a health plan that doesn't upcode is not going to have the revenues that a plan that does can and it will lose in the market. So we're trapped. Uh, so good people end up doing things that they wish they didn't have to do. A doctor speaks with me, a doctor whose practice was acquired actually by a health plan, sends me a note saying, I can no longer give the care that I really want to give. Uh, I'm no longer the doctor I, I wanted to be. And he's got a tough choice because he doesn't want to leave medicine, but he's got to play the game of upcoding and uh, and seeing more patients than he can handle, uh, because that's the game we're in. We're all trapped. So, and and the harm to patients is immense. Uh, we talked about medical debt, uh, which exceeds medical debt in any other country by a long shot, and is extremely painful for families. We talk about people not being able to get the care of the drugs they need. We talk about people who have to worry about becoming bankrupt or, and their and their security. We talk about people who see executives get paid numbers that they can't even imagine. They can't fit the numbers into their heads. They're so big. It's while they work just as hard for a fraction of that, they see their salaries being pulled into healthcare premiums rather than sending their kids to college or buying things they want. Uh, we're trapped. I don't know what to do, but I think that maybe we do need to elevate this conversation with risk. You know, I, I have come to believe maybe we got this thing set up really wrong that health and healthcare are important social goods we all depend on it we all need it it's it's not it's like clean air not like automobiles a market for automobiles makes sense to me a market for consumer goods makes sense to me but not a market for clean air and not a market for health and we've used market theory profit theory capitalist theory where it shouldn't apply and I know the outrage that that could provoke in, in among your listeners and others, but I think maybe we have to raise some very big questions here about what the social enterprise of healthcare ought to be. And I think it should be one in which we assure each other that we will take care of each other and we do not rely on markets and market forces and profit as the engine for achieving that. There are problems with that. I ran Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the government form of production. It has its problems, uh, political pressures, bureaucracies, opacity, but boy, I'll tell you, it's better to go to work every day, getting paid 
a moderate and fair salary to take care of the well-being of 110 million people was such a privilege. Mm -hmm. And profit did not enter my mind for a single day. It was all about how we're going to do better with what we have for the people we serve. So could we ever in this country elevate the conversation to the basic question, should healthcare be treated as a public good uh, rather than as a market opportunity? I think that's something we really should be talking about. That's incredibly thoughtful and balanced. What can individuals do? You're launching a podcast to speak to the public, and I assume underneath that, part of the goal is to, yes, create awareness and inform, but also potentially to catalyze action amongst the public, both within healthcare and out of healthcare. Is there a step? I'm a physician listening to this. I'm an administrator. I'm an executive. I'm a nurse. Is there a next step? Is there something moving beyond this sort of awareness? And I think awareness itself is being armed with these facts is critically important, asking the questions. I don't understand how anyone could argue with that. So uh, pulling back some of the opacity, what would you say to listeners who are out there and, and wondering and scratching their heads and, and grateful for the conversation and the shining the light, but also wondering about what they can do if there's something they could begin to do? Um, I don't know an answer that I feel totally comfortable with Zev in, in the article and in my further thinking, some things I've thought about is the first is, is, is it's voice. It's like every doctor, every nurse, every person who cares about healthcare will find themselves in rooms in which they can have this conversation. And, and there can be a buzz, a kind of uh, growing sense that this is wrong and that it needs to stop. And I, I, I think we, we could, it's easy to underestimate how powerful the voice of clinicians can be in changing minds. I think uh, we all find ourselves in relationship to our guilds, the American Medical Association, whatever specialist society you're in, whatever hospital association you're part of. And I think we need to, we need to hold our guilds accountable. This is a problem and uh, we need to shift thinking towards stewardship and away from self-interest. I know that's naive, but sometimes you got to say the truth. And in this case, uh, why don't we all stop fighting for more money for ourselves and start fighting for a just healthcare system and see if we could move guild leadership in that direction? Voting matters. I am clearly raising issues that have a political, if not partisan, side to that. We need members of Congress and people in our executives, executive branch in both states and the federal government who, who regard healthcare as a human right and are going to go to the mat to assure that it is assured for people and are going to have the guts to put constraints in on the profiteering behaviors, much more guts than we've seen so far. Right now, I don't know when this podcast will broadcast, but we have CMS trying with its advance notice on Medicare Advantage payments, for example, open for public comment saying, you know, should we go in this direction? I wish every single listener to this podcast, if the comment period is still open, or even if it's not, I should send a letter into Congress and to CMS saying uh, we support CMS in its attempt to rein in the uh, coding game. Uh, so, you know, that's political activism. I have a, a kind of, um, maybe it's a dream, but it's that I think the amount of distress is extremely large. Patients don't know what's going on. They're threatened economically. They, they feel insecure. Uh, hospital leaders find themselves in the moral bind that you and I just talked about. Mm -hmm. I think even pharma executives and, and leaders in insurance companies may be 
at night when they drive home might be wondering, is this really what I meant to do with my life? And certainly they have employees who are asking that question. Is there enough collective distress that if a way could be found for us to connect to each other, us distressed, connect to each other and say, game over, we've got to do this again and differently with different set of assumptions. That would, could be a massive political force. I'm not an expert on mobilization of that type, but I sure I'm going to do whatever I can to get people who are distressed but don't know each other to come to know each other so we can feel a sense of agency and collective action. That's a real long shot, you know, and chances, you know, 2% chance of success, but um, the problem is so big we ought to try. Yeah, super, super helpful. All those comments, recommendations, and I think doable and inspiring. So Don, I know I've kept you for a bit longer than anticipated, but uh, could continue with you and I'll say, you know, again, I opened up this conversation by saying I, I did have some anxiety, nervousness, trepidation about having this conversation. Well, maybe not so much having it, but as posting it. And it's interesting. I was listening to someone talk about courage recently, and they were trying to define what courage was. And I, I don't think they did, but in my mind, I started to sort of come to the sense that courage is when your sense of purpose becomes greater than your fear and pain. And I think that's what you were just speaking to that tipping point is when is your sense of purpose going to be greater than these fears and concerns we have and including very, very personal, very real in terms of salaries and that sort of thing. And so um, this gets very, very concrete, very, very personal, very quickly. Yes, it really does. Right. Doesn't it? Yeah. I heard, I love the quote. I think, is it C.S. Lewis said that courage is not just a virtue. It's the form of all virtues at the testing point. I think healthcare is at a testing point, and I think we we stand to lose something very big unless we uh, recruit the kind of energies we're talking about. To your to listeners, two th two requests of uh, three. Mm -hmm. One is find my podcast, turn on the lights when it finally is launched. Second, um, you don't have to beat up on yourself. You know, you, this is contextual, and I, I just you know maybe it's a Buddhist point of view or something. You're, you're fine. You're okay. You're just in a context which needs to be illuminated and. Uh, that, that's the beginning of wisdom in this case. I also think, Zev, if you'll do me the favor of uh, if listeners contact you, I don't know what mechanism you have for that, mm -hmm. both uh, angry at me and, and agreeing with me. I'd love to hear feedback and let's kind of get some wisdom together about where I may be right and where I may be wrong. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now I'll provide some direction around that when we post on social media and through emails and, and other channels. Don, I'm going to close us out. I think, again, we could literally, I got more to say and more to ask, more importantly, more to ask of you. But for now, I'm going to close it out. And as you know, as I do every episode, I conclude by thanking all of you out there sincerely for the hard work you're doing each and every day. And I think as Don just said, this is not about beating up on yourself. More than that, I think to feel good about yourselves as you do the work of taking care of patients or, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. You know, as Don said, I think the overwhelming vast majority of people, I mean, if you're in healthcare or around healthcare, you're there for a reason. Generally speaking, not to make a profit, it's to do good. And so you should feel good about yourself. I know that I and so many others truly appreciate you for what you're doing each and every day in whatever sector of healthcare you're in. We recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, to communities and our society. I can't thank Dr. Don Berwick enough for this conversation, for his time, and for all the contribution he has given to healthcare and our society. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.